welcome everybody. Uh, let me first introduce myself. Uh, my name is Professor Mick Cox. I'm here at the LSE, uh, founding director of Ideas and uh, working closely with Arnie Westad, the other director of Ideas, to continue, I hope, our good work. Uh, welcome to this Ideas organized lecture in a conjunction tonight with international relations. It's the third lecture we have done this week. We are over-fulfilling the plan, uh, as the Soviets might have said, though they never did. Um, last night we looked at uh, Islamists in power with Gilles Capel, who had been associated with us. The night before at the Soviet Gulag, <laughs> we give you quite a menu. And tonight we're looking at the United States uh, past, present, and no doubt future. And I've always thought nobody better to interpret the United States than a Norwegian. Uh, Professor Gail Lundestad, one of the most distinguished uh, international historians uh, of the Cold War, and in his spare time, secretary of the Norwegian Nobel Committee, based at the Norwegian Nobel Institute, located there near the slaughter uh, on Henrik Ibsen's Gata. I've known Gail for many years. Indeed, he has been unwise enough on several occasions to invite me over to Oslo to participate in his renowned seminar at the Nobel. Uh, I survived, some didn't. <laughs> Born in 1945 uh, in the north of Norway, uh, the real Norway, I think Gaia would say, Gaia studied history at the universities of Oslo and Tromsø, and significantly, I think he was a regular visitor to the United States on several occasions, and I think this amongst many other things, including his renowned skill with the pen and his great research capacities, I think that's made him a, such a shrewd interpreter of American foreign policy and its relations with the outside world. I remember many years ago when I was then at Queen's University in Belfast picking up a book as I was going around thinking about the early Cold War, and I came across a book by a young scholar, Guy Lundestadt. U.S. non-policy towards Eastern Europe in the years 1943 to 47. I thought, what a strange title of a book. Why write a book about a non-policy towards Eastern Europe in the early years of the Cold War? Actually, it was a fantastic book. It was a terrific analysis and dissection of how America has related to Eastern Europe or didn't relate to Eastern Europe in the early period of the Cold War. And I thought provided an extraordinarily subtle way of thinking about what America did and didn't do in those years. And he's been continuing ever since to write on transatlantic relations, on U.S. foreign policy. And his most recent book, of course, which we're here to discuss and debate tonight, The Rise and Decline of the American Empire. It's delivered, coincidentally, we plan everything with such precision, by the way, at Ideas. It's also delivered, coincidentally, on Thanksgiving Day. So Turkey will not be served afterwards. Anyway, I'm delighted to bring Ger back again for the second time uh, to, to the LSE. Ger, to talk on the rise and decline of the American empire. Ger, you are most welcome. Thank you, Mick, for that very uh, generous uh, introduction. Uh, It's a pleasure to be back at LSE. I was here a few years ago for a full house. Uh, I tried to f figure out why uh, all these people had come to listen to me, but uh, I was very pleased to see a uh, full house, and I'm very pleased to see so many of you here uh, uh, tonight as well. 
I am going to talk about making predictions about history, past, present, and future. Of course, we are, or the media, are almost always primarily interested in the future. They want to find out what will happen. Well, then I um, start my answer by saying, I'm a professor of history, I'm not a prophet. Uh, but nobody is really is interested in the media uh, in an analysis or predictions about the past, which is my business. I make predictions about the past as an historian. They want to hear predictions about the future, what will happen. And it's very risky business indeed to make predictions about the rise and fall of great powers. <laughs> Even the best of us make terrible mistakes. And one of the best historians, of course, is uh, Paul Kennedy. And he really uh, almost founded uh, the modern prediction business as far as great powers are concerned. I mean, he wrote uh, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which came out in 1987. And there he predicted the fall of the United States. And no sooner was the book out than the Soviet Union collapsed. A book which was not uh, entirely foreseen in Rise and Fall. Then, of course, he wrote another book, uh, Preparing for the 21st Century, which came out six years uh, later. And he came to the Nobel Institute to present some early ideas uh, about the new book. And in this book, he predicted that the 21st century belonged to Japan. No sooner was the book out that Japan went into an economic and political crisis, and it's still there. And the, I mean, every now and then you think that, oh, well, the worst is over in Japan, then you get new numbers for the uh, growth or lack of growth, and the political crisis is still there. So nobody now predicts that the 21st century will belong to Japan. And in the analysis of the United States, which, of course, is the main power I write about in my book, um, I mean, there's been almost constant development. Some have been very optimistic about the United States. There have been political scientists in the United States uh, all through the most recent years who have argued, that no, there's absolutely no decline. The U.S. is not in decline. And if it had, has been in decline... There are some who then have coming back and arguing that, well, if there had been any decline, it's over. It's over. And the most recent evidence, if you want to point to optimistic evidence for the United States, it is, of course, the energy situation. That in 2015, most likely, the United States will be producing more gas than Russia, uh, and in 2017, it will be producing more oil than Saudi Arabia. And in the not-too-distant future, it will be uh, almost uh, energy independent. A very important and a very drastic new development. So that I want to be precise about this. The, the title of my book is The Rise and Decline of the American Empire. I think the American role was so strong that I chose to call it an empire, but I do not want to spend most of my time here on arguing about the empire part, but I want to argue about the, 
the more recent uh, situation. But it is a decline. It's not a fall. And you see this fall if you have a long-term perspective. And if we start in 1945, then uh, the United States produced as much as the rest of the world put together. 50% of world production was in the United States. I mean, this situation had never, ever existed in history before, and it's probably never going to exist, exist again. It was the result of the war, the United States benefiting economically from the Second World War, while much of the rest of the world, particularly Europe, uh, suffering major uh, destruction. So this 50% had to decline, and it had to decline rapidly. So that in 1950, the United States produced 40% of total world production, and in 1960, it produced 30% of world production, and in 1975, it produced 25% of world production. So you know what happens. I mean, you draw a line and you extend this line. And you have this very dramatic fall from 50% to 25%. And obviously then, sometime in the future, in the not too distant future, there as somebody will surpass the United States. And the feeling of decline was remarkably strong in the 1970s. For obvious reasons. I mean, this growth line was maybe at the bottom of much of this, but uh, clearly more dramatic was Vietnam, Watergate, and Richard Nixon and his presidency. If you want to study a presidency concerned with decline and talking openly about decline, you should study the Nixon-Kissinger years. Because Nixon... I mean, most American presidents are very optimistic about the future. You have to be optimistic about the future. But Nixon was not. He kept referring to the five power centers that were emerging. United States, Western Europe, Russia, China, Japan. And he clearly foresaw uh, that the United States would become more of an ordinary great power, one of the five. It was still the leading of the five, but there were five of them. And there, was, there are some curious references in his papers where he talks, to the, talks about the buildings in Washington, uh, the, the legacy of Greece and Rome, and would the United States be the modern kind of Greece and Rome? Very unusual words for an American president. But we know that the, uh, uh, the climate changed. There was mourning in America with Ronald Reagan. Um, and they were the 1990s uh, with Bill Clinton. I mean, the 1990s were a very good decade for the United States. With very substantial economic growth, uh, with 22 million jobs being created in the Clinton years. That is probably the most important part of his historical uh, legacy. 
Um, there was high productivity growth, and nobody quite understood why the United States was able to renew itself at such a speed in the 1990s. And it turned out that the percentage I was talking about, from, the, from 50 down to 25, it stayed pretty much at that level. So it has remained in the 90s, and even more recently, it's, it's very difficult to get this exactly right, but the current percentage is 21, 22, 23. So a marginal decline in this most important of trend lines. And George Bush, of course, he was a product of this optimism, of this renewal. He thought that America was strong, America was mighty, it could do almost anything it put its mind and its back to. The possibilities were unlimited. And the results were Afghanistan and Iraq. So it's all a question of your standard of comparison when you talk about decline. Yes, there has been long-term decline economically. And I try to outline this. And certainly compared to the tremendous optimism of the 90s and particularly of the Bush years, that the U.S., I mean, this was the unipolar moment. The U.S. could do anything. Nobody believes this anymore. After Afghanistan and after Iraq, the U.S. is reluctant to become involved militarily. We have seen this in leading from behind in Libya, and we have seen this in the lack of action in Syria. And then on top of this, there is the recession, the economic difficulties, the economic events starting in 2007, 2008, which has made the United States into a giant debt nation. I mean, the United States always gave these lectures to the rest of the world about the importance of balancing your budgets. I mean, whenever there was a crisis in Latin America, whenever there was a crisis in East Asia, the American told the world that balance your budgets or you will be punished. But the United States never balanced its budgets. It has been running deficits year in, year out, both on the federal budget and, of course, when it uh, comes to uh, current accounts, uh, the trade uh, deficit. So the U.S. is a debt nation. The total of its public debt, not only the federal but also local debt, is 100% of GDP, which is uh, a bit lower, granted, than in Greece and Italy and Portugal and these worst cases, but 100% is very serious. And at its highest, two years ago, uh, the yearly uh, deficit uh, was 10 to 11 percent 
of GDP, which is very high. But the U.S. I mean, prints its own money, uh, and one way of trying to solve the situation is obviously by printing money. The rest of us, we have to pay $100 to get $100. In the U.S., you just print money. It doesn't cost you anything. Whether this will solve the situation is an entirely uh, different question. But the U.S. is struggling. The U.S. is not able to lead the world in the same way uh, that it led the world uh, in previous decades. If you have followed the debate on uh, the great powers, you are, of course, aware of the fact that there have been many predictions about the United States sooner or later being overtaken by various uh, challengers. The Soviet Union was the first case. I mean, there was Khrushchev in the late 50s who predicted uh, that uh, uh, the Soviet Union uh, would come to overtake the United States economically. I mean, the communist system was simply more efficient than the, the wasteful capitalist system. Khrushchev believed this. And many others believed this too. I mean, we, we know what happened. So we, we are not really serious in our analysis about what people were thinking in the 50s and 60s. I will give you just one example from my own country, uh, Norway. Um, in, the, in the late 1950s, two of the leading foreign policy thinkers sent a memorandum to the government and said that we have to be very, very serious about developing the northern part of Norway, where I come from the so-called underdeveloped part of Norway. Because if we are not developing northern Norway with the tremendous growth rates we are seeing in Russia, pretty soon Nor Nor Norwegians in the north of the country will want to leave the country to settle on the Kola Peninsula. It's a joke, of course, because we know what happened but I, I'm not here to make fun of those who made the prediction. I'm here to make you think uh, about the fact that many in the 50s and 60s actually thought that this was how it was going to develop. The Soviet threat or the, the Soviet Union never surpassed uh, uh, the United States. It collapsed. Of course, the next big challenger was Japan. I mean, we all remember the books. Ezra Fogel, Japan as number one, and an endless number of books. And Paul Kennedy's prediction in 1993, preparing for the 21st century, Japan, because there had been these decades of very substantial growth. But no, again, it did not come to pass. Then a few years later, at the turn of the millennium, there were a flood of books about the EU. The EU uh, would come to uh, surpass the United States. And true, the EU had many factors working in its favor. Uh, it has a population 200 million larger than that of the US. It has a gross national product, uh, all uh, 27. 
larger than that of the U.S., although the Eurozone as such is slightly smaller than the U.S. Uh, gross national product. And there has been an ambition on the part of the EU uh, to develop a common foreign and security policy. They announced the ambition and they suggested that the reality was here, but we all know what the reality is. There is uh, no real common foreign and security policy among the EU countries. They are divided on many serious issues. And we saw that uh, amply demonstrated, for instance, uh, in connection with Libya, uh, where Germany wanted to have no part, uh, absolutely no part, uh, in the operation where uh, France uh, and Britain were the leaders. There are many, uh, also in the United States, who admire the European lifestyle and suggest that it may be better to live in Europe than in the United States. But I think this is a very different phenomenon from arguing that the EU uh, will uh, possibly be overtaking the United States uh, for the leading uh, power. I mean, I feel it's so obvious being in Britain. <laughs> I, uh, my real job is to be the secretary of the Norwegian Nobel Committee, and you may know that uh, we, we just decided to give the Nobel Peace Prize for uh, 2012 to the EU. Uh, uh, and of course, there is a huge historical case for the EU. Uh, German-French reconciliation, incorporation of the Southern Europeans, the Eastern and Central Europeans, and what they are trying to do in the Balkans. So I think it's an obvious case. They certainly uh, deserve the Nobel Peace Prize. But the only surprise in studying all the responses around Europe and the world to this announcement was Britain. I was not prepared for the fact uh, that opinion and even... Uh, leading newspapers uh, in Britain were as negative uh, to the EU uh, as they um, have been. I mean, it's, uh, this, this was the one surprise in the reactions. I thought that some, at least maybe a couple of the quality papers uh, would have a more nuanced approach, and maybe they did, um, but uh, even they uh, were quite uh, skeptical. The EU will have to develop further. I mean, they will have to agree uh, on a banking policy. Uh, they will have to agree uh, on uh, certain uh, financial uh, guidelines. Uh, so the EU uh, will continue to develop, and it will continue to be uh, a factor. But it not, will not be a major superpower, because Europeans, not only in Britain, but also in many other countries, they define their identities primarily in national terms. They do have an additional, not in Britain, they have virtually no European identity, but in many of the other countries, they do have an additional European identity, uh, but it is um, quite far behind uh, the primary national identity. But then there's China. Now, of course, there's been an endless wave of books 
about China and the tremendous progress uh, that China has made uh, economically. And I think uh, in terms of challenging the United States, uh, the Chinese case is the most uh, dramatic one. I mean, since China uh, launched its new economic policy in 1978, uh, they have had very uh, substantial growth. Uh, they have had 10% growth uh, year in, year out. And um, China's GDP surpassed Germany's, and in 2010 it surpassed Japan's. And if you uh, use growth in the 10 most recent years in the United States, and in China, China will, within a 10-year period, get a gross national product which is larger than that of the United States, which is very dramatic, because the United States has had the largest gross national product in the world, at least since 1870. And if a power actually turns out to have a larger gross national product than the U.S., uh, that will be a very significant development. Well, of course, we do see signs of Chinese growth uh, tapering off. I mean, now it's 7 7.5%. It's very difficult to know exactly uh, what it will be uh, in the future. Uh, but it, there's every reason to believe uh, that growth in China will continue to be uh, much larger than in the United States. So there is only a question of time then before uh, this uh, phenomenon will happen. And some have uh, interpreted this in a very dramatic light, that China will challenge the United States for the number one position. Well, uh, we have to remember a few things. That even if China does get a, a larger gross national product uh, than the United States, uh, its wealth will still be only, in, in per capita terms, will be only one-fourth one that of the U.S., since there are four times as many inhabitants in China than in the United States. So China will not be a very rich country even then on a per capita basis. And all who have been to China know, of course, that the growth has been tremendous in the coastal areas, uh, but some of the uh, uh, other areas are, are lagging behind. Uh, but there is reason to believe that since these areas are still lagging behind, that they could also be, be part of this growth and that this can keep up the uh, growth numbers uh, in uh, China. Uh, although China will, surprisingly uh, enough, have problems uh, with uh, the labor force. I mean, the one-child policy will have a very uh, negative impact uh, on the supply uh, of labor in, in China. Uh, and as has been said, China is the first country that becomes old before it becomes rich. So the population uh, structure in China is challenging. Uh, 
and it's uh, less advantageous than the population structure in the U.S. But China is clearly growing rapidly. It is also developing militarily. Uh, the growth in its defense spending is very high, uh, quite a bit higher uh, than the economic uh, growth rates. Uh, and the U.S. defense budget uh, is under pressure. Uh, they will have to reduce by roughly $500 billion. And if they are not able to come to some sort of agreement uh, at the end of this year, uh, they may have to reduce uh, the defense budget uh, over the next 10 years by an additional uh, $500 billion. So the, even the defense budget in the United States is under great pressure. But defense spending in the U.S. is still six to, six to seven times larger than in China. And the U.S. is spending about 4% of its GDP on defense, while China, despite the increases, is still spending roughly 2%, 2% plus. So while we see the economic lead of the U.S. certainly becoming smaller, the military lead of the U.S. is still quite substantial. And this was most succinctly summed up by Robert Gates, I mean the previous defense secretary, when he was challenged about the situation of the U.S. Navy because he was criticized for not uh, spending um, enough on the Navy. And you saw this also in the campaign when Romney criticized the Obama administration for the decline in the number of ships uh, in the U.S. Navy. Uh, Robert Gates gave a very forceful answer. He said that the U.S. Navy is as large as the next 13 navies in the world put together. And out of these 13, 11 are our allies. So what's the problem? It's a very good question. Well, there's much talk about soft power. And China is investing in all kinds of soft power, from television uh, to Confucius Institutes and science and research and putting lots of money into universities and educating students, and there are tremendous numbers of students, probably some of them in the audience here, because thousands and thousands of Chinese are all over the world being, attending the most prestigious uh, universities. But again, they still have some distance to go. Well, I like to think that Nobel Prizes is one way of measuring uh, excellence. And, and China is getting few uh, Nobel Prizes, and those that, they re that China receives are not necessarily very highly appreciated. Uh, they would long to get some in the sciences, and they have not had any in, in medicine or physics and chemistry. Uh, there are several Chinese Americans, of course, who have won Nobel Prizes, and they are celebrated as big heroes when they come to China. They desperately want to receive the kind of intellectual uh, distinction which is uh, uh, 
there in the, in the Nobel Prizes. But they do have a distance to go, and they do have a major problem, and that is the many Chinese who receive this uh, excellent education abroad and do not return. And instead, of course, uh, benefit uh, the countries uh, where they have studied. I mean, look at the situation of the hard sciences in America, the difficulties they have had in recruiting people. I mean, the Asians, and certainly the Chinese, have been very important uh, in this uh, connection. And they have huge problems with corruption. I mean, at the last party, 18th Party Congress just finished, I mean, the, the talk about corruption, I mean, it was, uh, it was very explicit, very open. I mean, when the new leader said explicitly that corruption threatened not only the party, but also the state, you understand um, what the dimensions are. But you also understand that they have no solution. They have no solution. I mean, when uh, they have a closed society where the party still leads, they will face the same problem which Gorbachev uh, faced in the Soviet Union. How do you have reform when the party remains in power and the same leaders, at least uh, their convictions are pretty much the same, remain in power? Gorbachev thought that the solution was glasnost. Well, the Chinese, uh, they don't like that road. Uh, but how then uh, do you uh, uh, combat corruption um, if um, you don't uh, have uh, a press uh, or uh, politicians uh, who can bring this out uh, in the open? And the long-term question about China is, of course, uh, whether the Chinese will accept uh, that one party uh, decides all the basic uh, political issues. Particularly when the party has uh, a very mixed uh, history. I mean, we all know about the Great Leap Forward. And the number of people who died seemed to ever to be revised upwards, 30, 35, 40, 45 million. The Cultural Revolution and many, the indignities which many even of the leaders and the leaders' parents suffered. I, I'm not thinking or referring to changes uh, next week or next year, but I find it very hard to believe uh, that the party will be able to maintain its monopoly uh, on making uh, political decisions uh, in the long-term future. To sum up, uh, and I, I want to leave ample time for questions and answers, because uh, I, I've, I've heard the, the speech before, uh, <laughs> although I never use a manuscript, so I... I often surprise myself by saying things I wonder about. Why in the world did I say this or that? Uh, so it uh, kind of keep me, uh, keeps me on my toes. Uh, but basically, I, I knew what I would be saying. Uh, but I don't know, don't know what you will be saying. But, but I think we, we, 
is there, is there a decline in the American role? And, and many American, very prominent American political scientists argue very forcefully that no, they reject the entire notion of decline. I mean, they, they use the... the uh, they, they print the same numbers over and over again. Uh, and of course, it's still true that uh, the Chinese gross national product is only half that of the U.S. They, if they are to catch up, they have to go another 50% uh, up. Uh, but they have been moving up very briskly. Uh, and in fact, if you use PPP, purchasing power parity, uh, as the way to measure this, uh, there are prominent uh, economists who argue that um, the Chinese gross national product in PPP terms is already larger than that of the U.S., but most people do not use PPP terms. But uh, I think that although the, the growth in China is becoming weaker, it is still uh, much uh, higher than in the U.S. So it might well happen. And then they use... Um, defense spending, and clearly, yes, the U.S. spends more on defense than um, any other power. Uh, but I think what is new is the realization, which became so clear in the Bush years, that you can only do so much with this military. I mean, after Afghanistan and Iraq... there is a considerable reluctance to use the military force and there is much less optimism about what you can achieve and uh, this may not necessarily be captured uh, in the numbers which uh, some uh, political scientists uh, focus uh, so much upon. And I think you already see the consequences in the international system. You see uh, that nobody is actually leading to the same extent that the United States led some decades ago. Clearly, the world needs a leader. The world needs an economic leader. I mean, the U.S. would take the initiative when there were economic crises in Latin America, when there were crises in East Asia in 1997, 1998. But clearly, the U.S. is not able to lead internationally in getting the world uh, through the uh, recession uh, and into new growth. Because the U.S. has such tremendous problems itself. It's huge debt and the political gridlock uh, politically. There are signs that the gridlock may be easing up a little bit. But we will soon see, uh, uh, when uh, the U.S. is facing this fiscal cliff, what it will actually be able uh, to achieve. I would not be terribly optimistic that the U.S. will be able to undertake the kind of reform which is necessary. They may not fall over the cliff, but much, much more uh, is needed. So there is no leadership. I mean, Tim Geithner, he travels all the, all the time. The uh, U.S. tries to come up with solutions, but, I mean, very few listen or will change its policies because 
the U.S. does not lead by example, not in any way. We see the, in international trade, we have the Doha round, I mean, which started, if I remember correctly, in 2001, and it still hasn't been finished, and it probably will not be finished. Because, again, the West, with the United States in the lead, is not able to bring these trade talks to a conclusion. The differences between the United States, largely supported by the EU, and China, India, and others, these differences are such that no solution have been possible. We see the same thing uh, in the environmental field, uh, where many of us clearly believe that solutions are needed. I mean, we are uh, facing global warming, and, and we have to do something, but nothing is done. And the United States is certainly not providing uh, the solution because there they are endlessly debating whether there is such a thing as global warming. I think U.S. technology will be important in the solution. Uh, but clearly there's absolutely no leadership from the U.S. And even if it had tried to lead, which it doesn't really do, uh, it would have been very difficult uh, for uh, the U.S. Uh, to, um, to provide the solutions. So yes, I do think that the U.S. is uh, or has declined, certainly compared to the uh, first decades after 1945 uh, and certainly compared to the rebound, if you will, in the 1990s because the, the optimism is gone and the internal problems are huge. But nobody will be able in the near future to challenge the United States for the number one position. So we will be facing a world with one power significantly stronger than any of the others, but in every region of the world there will be some other power uh, that will play uh, a crucial uh, role. I mean, there's China, uh, there's uh, India, uh, well, there's, there's uh, Russia uh, still, although uh, growth in Russia has uh, declined, uh, and it's very, very uh, energy uh, dependent. I mean, they are selling oil, gas, and weapons. And um, that is not a very good sign uh, for the long-term future <laughs> of Russia. And if you combine that with the collapse in the uh, life expectancy of Russian men, I mean, think of it. The Russian men used to have a life expectancy of 72, 73 years, and then it collapsed to 58. Think of the tragedy behind that. Now it has recovered a little bit, so it's uh, about 62, 63. Russia has huge problems. But, of course, it will be a, a, an important actor uh, in its uh, own uh, neighborhood. There's Brazil, where I think uh, the problems are somewhat larger than we thought uh, a few years ago. The BRICS, Brazil, looking less good than it um, used to a few years ago. Russia, also looking more problematic. India declining growth, but still uh, strong growth. 
and uh, there is China, uh, uh, where growth is very strong uh, despite uh, a certain uh, tapering off. I do not really believe that uh, history repeats itself. It's often said that history repeats itself. If history repeats itself, it's very difficult to find out exactly what it is in history that repeats itself, there, because there are a thousand or hundreds of different possible parallels. But historians certainly repeat themselves. <laughs> and on that happy note, I will end. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, well, Gers, as he said, uh, he knows what he's talking about. Uh, he wants a lot of questions uh, from the floor, and I already see five or six hands already going up. Uh, if you could bring me, um, take the, uh, the woman in the middle here, please. Yeah, I never quite know what it is. And the chap at the back there, there's two fingers up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you could pass the microphone over straight away, then we can do it quicker. Yeah. We'll take two at a time, please. Yeah. And if you could speak up, please. Thank you. Hello. Um, I'm an IRR student in City University, and I was actually wondering. You touched upon some arguments that I'm really interested in, and uh, you talked about how some powers like China, India, Russia are growing, and how this affects the world. But my curiosity is, how is exactly America? going to react to these growing powers. I mean, we see America defeating and making then the USSR collapse by seeing it as a great enemy. I was wondering whether you have some ideas that you could share with us um, how actually America is seeing this power growing in the world and if it sees especially China as an enemy and how it will react. You touched it upon in your discussion, but I would like some more details. And as far as my study is concerned, they are saying that America took the role as a leader previously. So is China actually wanting to take this role as a leader in the future? These are two small questions that I wanted to ask. <laughs> Just little ones. <laughs> okay. Uh, a gentleman there, please. Yeah. Hi there. Um, I'm Henry Law. Um, clearly we're moving towards a more multipolar world, um, but we've talked a lot about the weaknesses of the, Americans, uh, of the American economy tonight. But um, surely, you know, one of their strengths is, the, is their huge intellectual capital and the fact that many of the world's leading universities are in the U.S. and um, most, yeah, and many, many of the world's leading companies and um, most sophisticated technology uh, and products and services emanate from the from the states, and that's something which China really can't compete with um, under the current circumstances. Um, China, in fact, uh, many of their products are more derivative. Um, they're good at making you know, lower specification goods and services. So do you think that will continue to be a strength of um, the American economy for some time to come? And secondly, how do you see the U.S. economy reforming um, in order to uh, maintain some of its current strength? Because uh, you, you kind of touched on that at the end, but you didn't really elaborate. And uh, I'd be interested to hear about that. Okay, there's, there's five questions masquerading as two. Um, U.S. reaction to China, how will it, can China become a leader and doesn't the United States have a massive lead in intellectual capital as measured by uh, league tables of world universities, in which I think now 58 of 100 universities are defined as U.S. universities? Yeah, over to you. Um, yes, it's interesting to note that um, 
the questions, again, deal primarily with the uh, future. What will happen? Uh, and I'm happy to answer these uh, questions or try to answer these questions. Uh, I'm an old man and I have established my reputation and uh, I can make whatever. You can lose it here tonight. I can Gary, lose right? it here. <laughs> By I, making some mad I, predictions. Yes, I can uh, lose it here tonight, <laughs> but uh, who cares? Uh, <laughs> uh, that's why I started on the cautionary note, which I did. I mean, it is, um, we, 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 we try to say meaningful things about the future. Uh, and of course, Paul Kennedy had his, all his wonderful PhD students at Yale studying all the crucial variables at, uh, about Japan, and they came up with the eight variables, and they went into great detail, but they were all wrong. Because, I mean, the, the, the world is so complex uh, that you cannot get all the uh, variables. I mean, some sort of scientists claim that uh, they have more general insights. No. China... Uh, how uh, the United States reacts to the rise, particularly of China. Yes, I, uh, uh, I think the U.S. was very confused at first. Uh, and this certainly applies to the, the Obama administration as well. Uh, the first thing uh, the Obama administration did after he took over was that Hillary Clinton went to Beijing and she told the world uh, that the Chinese-American relationship would be crucial and they would focus on the three big uh, issues, the economy, security, and the environment. And she said surprisingly clearly that the old issues, meaning Tibet, Taiwan, and human rights, uh, would be played down. It was argued later that uh, she hadn't really said this, but this was clearly uh, the impression uh, she left. Uh, and the Chinese appreciated this very much. <laughs> uh, and when Obama then uh, went to China at the end of the year, 2009, he did not really change this uh, impression. But obviously, uh, U.S. policy towards China has uh, changed very significantly. Uh, there has been the pivot to, to, to Asia, and the U.S. Uh, is clearly uh, telling the world uh, that we will be around in Asia. We will play an important role, and it is telling all the various countries in, uh, in Asia uh, that... Uh, um, you can de depend on us. Um, I didn't really mention uh, in my presentation maybe the most important of all these variables in favor of the U.S., and that is the role of allies. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the U.S., of course, has traditional allies in uh, Asia, South Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Philippines in the old days. Thailand, uh, and many uh, of the countries in Asia are very concerned about the rise of China. And most remarkable is the transformation of the American-Indian relationship, which to a large extent took place under George Bush. I mean, Bush improved uh, 
the relationship with India a great deal when he accepted uh, India uh, as a nuclear power. Um, clearly, the countries of Asia, they do not want to choose between the United States and China. And China is, for most of them, their primary uh, trading partner. Uh, but it is very striking uh, that they are clearly favored uh, an increased U.S. role, also a military role, in the area. Uh, China has not been pursuing an alliance policy. I mean, China is against alliances. Uh, but when uh, we look at the countries uh, most partial to China, it's not really much of a record. I mean, there's North Korea. Uh, there used to be Burma or Myanmar, uh, but there have been dramatic changes uh, in Burma. And when the huge dam project was cancelled, it was obvious that uh, Burma would be turning uh, westwards. Uh, there's Pakistan, which of course is, is uh, sympathetic uh, to China, but has its own problems. There was much talk about Chinese naval bases in various countries some years ago, but it turns out that most of these naval bases are not really particularly useful. The thing that could really change the picture in Asia uh, entirely uh, if, is if uh, there would be some sort of uh, Chinese-Japanese reconciliation, but there is clearly no sign of that. And instead we see the territorial issues very rapidly becoming rather explosive in nature. I mean, uh, two years ago, uh, Spratlys and the Paracel Islands, I mean, even experts knew very little about the islands in the South China Sea. Now we all have to study up on the islands in the South China Sea because this is uh, becoming a very difficult issue and you have the China-Japan issue. I don't, I don't think the Chinese, have, they have absolutely, uh, they know uh, the limits of China's power. And they talk about the peaceful rise of China. They, they play this down. They, uh, they, they do not uh, want to be seen um, as a rapidly rising power that could challenge the international system, although they make it clear that the international system will have to be uh, to, to be changed. But it expects its regional role to be increasingly recognized. Um, and there are many uh, of the other countries in the area who are not prepared to give that kind of recognition. So uh, this could become a very difficult issue. Uh, now I suddenly started thinking of my wife. Uh, the reason is not that I miss her, but she, if she had been in the audience, she would have said, Jesus, you give such long answers. You must stop. <laughs> give us one on intellectual capital. Yeah, the intellectual. Now. Yes, of course. Uh, uh, the U.S. is way ahead uh, in, 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 in intellectual power. Its universities are the leading in the world, although I see there are three or four in Britain who claim bad, or bad, increase, yeah, yeah. are even recognized by others yeah, as providing yeah. some sort of competition. Do my best. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, uh, but but 
China has very far to go. Uh, and I think uh, all the articles that have been written about the number of patents and the number of students in China and the, the number of scholarly articles, it's all true. China is rising. Uh, all this is very important. Uh, uh, but China still has uh, quite some distance uh, to go. The U.S. economy reforming, yes, they will have to do something. I mean, but it's, um, it's, it's, I mean, when they had the debate last year about uh, raising the debt limit, I mean, you could hardly believe what you saw. I mean, this, it's, are they going to raise the debt limit or not? Are you actually going to see the United States default in open view? And, uh, uh, yes, uh, it, it was remarkable. I think um, the, the power equation has changed somewhat in Obama's favor. Uh, but uh, what the solution will be uh, is still very unclear. Uh, and and I, I visit, there's one uh, American city I visit every year because uh, we have some Nobel events there every year, Minneapolis. <laughs> Minneapolis is a nice city. Uh, among the better run in America. But one of its major bridges fell down and people were killed. I mean, it, right in the heart of the city, the bridge fell down because they are not taking care of the infrastructure. It's collapsing. So um, there are some problems there. Can I uh, just jump in here? Because I, I wondered at one stage whether you were making the argument for the continuation of American power rather than the decline of American power. Because you gave a, a lot of wonderful examples against yourself, which I thought uh, was excellent. Uh, you, you pointed out that the Soviet Union came and went, that Japan came and went, that Ezra Vogel predicted that Japan would become number one, and he was wrong. Paul Kennedy predicted the decline of America, and he got it wrong, though he sold 25 million books. Um, the European Union was paraded as a potential uh, balancer, and nobody talks about that any longer. America has great allies. It prints its own money. It's got a navy to die for. Um, it spends six times more than the Chinese on military stuff, and the Chinese, the Chinese position economically, as you've pointed out, uh, is still problematic, and it can't lead in the sense. So... I just wonder if you didn't, in, in, in terms of your notion of what you mean by decline, it still seemed to me, coming out of your argument, that there are these problems, bridges falling down, too much debt, it, it reluctance to lead, a certain cultural, intellectual pessimism in America today after the crisis. But what you seem also to be pointing to, as, as, as I heard you, was some really fundamental structural advantages that the United States still has. And... So that really raises the question in my mind, what you actually mean by decline. I mean, it's, it's a problematic word anyway. No? So just, could you yeah. just pick that one up and I'll yeah. put in other people? Yeah. Uh, it, it's very difficult to get this right. Yeah. Uh, of course, it's uh, much easier to write a book where you kind of go all out <laughs> uh, and have a one-factor explanation or a one-power explanation. Hmm. and you become very famous <laughs> and you get it all wrong um, well, you're very famous uh, so this is what I've been struggling with uh, you're absolutely right uh, 
there are arguments going in different directions and it depends on what your standard of comparison is. And I don't talk about fall, I talk mm. about decline. Sure. Uh, I try to indicate that yes, I mean compared to the US position in the first decades mm. after World War II, yes there has been a decline, a very substantial decline. Uh, and there has been a decline compared to the situation, the very optimistic situation in mm. the 90s and under Bush. Sure. So if this is your standard of comparison, yes, the decline is there and it's clear to see. Mm. Uh, and the consequences are what I tried to describe at the end. And nobody is really um, uh, providing the kind of uh, leadership mm. which the U.S. provided. Mm. Yes. But uh, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, Many of the challengers uh, have failed. I think, I think the Chinese challenge is the most serious one. Uh, and I think the day will actually come when China has a larger gross national product. Uh, but China will not uh, become that leader. So it all depends on your standard of comparison. It's very difficult to to, to get this right, and the balance shifts every day. I mean, I, it was striking when I read the, the latest report on the world energy situation. Mm. Um, again, clearly this is a factor of, um, uh, which uh, provides uh, some uh, a basis for some optimism uh, in the U.S. Uh, and maybe uh, the political gridlock will get um, a little easier. We'll see. But it, it, it has been very unusual and very dramatic to see a country like the United States almost self-destructing politically mm. right in front of your very eyes. Mm, 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 mm. Okay, I, got, I had some hands. Uh, two people next to each other here with two right hands up. There's a lady and a gentleman. Uh, and if you could bring the other, take it out to give it to the gentleman with the glasses on, yeah. Uh, I'll just bring the other one around. And then I'll take two together. Please, thanks. Yeah. Hi. Uh, uh, if you can go. Yeah, please. Thanks. I, I wanted to ask that you said that history does not repeat itself, but um, in many cases, natural disasters have precipitated the decline or the fall of empires. In your opinion, how natural disaster-proof are these superpowers and, and America? Okay. Uh, next year. Thank you. I'm Jakub Munyai, fellow student at DLSE. Uh, I wanted to ask, firstly, um, you were talking about the fact that the, the U.S. is not able now to have a leading role also uh, with reference to the current economic situations. And... <clears throat> It's interesting to see that in the 40s, uh, the U.S. were the leading force behind uh, Bretton Hood, and the, the American universities, they were the main uh, place to spread Keynesianism all over. During the 70s, um, the U.S. was still back as a leading force, spreading monetarism and neoliberal um, economic policies. Now, at the beginning of the crisis, there was, let's say globally, both in Europe and the U.S. Uh, are sort of uh, going back to Keynes because of Obama, but now um, this is not going. 
we are back to austerity, and so they are not still able to go on with this leadership, with reference to Europe. And so the second question is, might it be possible that using the European platform, Germany, even in a very not clear way, is challenging from an economic ideas role, the leading role of the US? Okay, let's take those. History does not repeat itself in disasters. Leadership in relationship to Europe and German challenge to American uh, intellectual hegemony. Well, we, uh, we certainly cover a lot of territory. Uh, oh, we've only just started that. So yes. Um, there's an American historian um, who died a few years ago, uh, uh, whom I admire a great deal, uh, Ernest uh, May. And uh, Ernest, he wrote many books, uh, but two that are particularly relevant uh, in this context. He wrote a little book <coughs> called Lessons of the Past. Wonderful book. Uh, and in that little book, he argues that uh, it is very, very difficult to learn from history because there are hundreds, as I said, hundreds if not thousands of possible parallels. And of course, you, you just pick on the one that is politically or intellectually convenient for you to make whatever argument you want to make. You're not really studying history to find out what the answer is. You know what the answer is, and then you dig into history to find uh, the answer you're looking for. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to learn from history. Then he wrote a second book with his colleague at Harvard, Richard Neustadt, called Thinking in Time. Uh, and I even, um, many, many years ago, I attended a course they did at Harvard on this. There the argument is exactly the opposite. <laughs> if you read our book, even the dimmest bureaucrat can learn from history. Uh, and they won prizes, and they sold thousands and thousands of books. I think the first one, the little book, was uh, right intellectually. Uh, yes, I think the, uh, the second answer, I mean, you provided the examples uh, of American leadership in the past. Bretton Woods, uh, neoliberalism, Thatcher, Reagan. Um, and what, what is the, American, the big American idea now? Uh, what is the basis on which the United States is trying to lead the intellectual rationale? Hmm. It's very uh, unclear what this uh, intellectual rationale is. Uh, and whatever it might be, you will not get it through Congress. <laughs> uh, uh, well, Germany. Well, <laughs> no, I'm not a great believer in Germany kind of uh, uh, taking over Europe and uh, providing a, a basis for a European... Uh, rush for leadership or domination. No, no, I think, the, of course, the Germans, they have, uh, uh, they have learned from history, and uh, uh, that's why, uh, in part, why the EU, they have learned too much from history in many ways. Uh, uh, they do not want to play that uh, security role or that political role, um, which uh, makes it difficult. I mean, if the EU is to establish a true common foreign and security policy, uh, the basis of leadership uh, would most likely be Britain uh, and France, as we saw in Libya. But I mean, with the situation in, in Britain being what it is, I mean, I, I, uh, 
the, the more I, I uh, read about the situation in Britain, I mean, referendum coming up, and will you actually, uh, it, it's uh, not uh, unthinkable that uh, Britain might even uh, drop out of the EU entirely. There might be a referendum. Uh, no, uh, uh, it's difficult to see uh, who will provide uh, the kind of leadership, uh, security leadership uh, in the EU with attitudes in Britain being what they are and with attitudes uh, in Germany being uh, what they are. Uh, and, uh, and even the economic situation in Germany is not as optimistic as uh, many think. I mean, if you go back, you don't have to go back that many years before, uh, I mean, uh, Germany was said to be the, uh, the problem of the European economy. I mean, if you go back uh, mm -hmm. 10 years or so, uh, then uh, Schroeder was able to undertake certain reforms. Growth rates in Germany are not particularly impressive these days. Uh, so no, I don't uh, think Germany will provide that kind of leadership. Okay, I can take two or three more. Uh, there's a chat down here, yeah, take that one there. Um, and there's a person with a yellow tie. Sorry, didn't uh, mean to insult your tie. Okay. Uh, yeah, first person over here. Yeah, please, sir. Hello. Uh, yes, I'm a former student at the um, LSE. Well, one thing I was always struck by with regards to what, what you were saying about decline was this element of optimism. You, you mentioned, you know, Reagan being a very optimistic person, probably one of the reasons why he was so successful as a politician. Do you think that there is an issue, therefore, in the fact that you don't really seem to get a great deal of that optimism being replicated in politics today, especially, you know, in the West? I mean, Obama won with an optimistic message, but no one in Europe seems to be talking in a particularly excited way about the future. And ditto if you have a look at, you know, Mr. Xi in China talking about corruption or the fact that the uh, Liberal Democrats in Japan have just elected... Uh, uh, Mr. Abe again, who was very reactionary in a lot of his views with regards to the Constitution and the like. I wondered if you thought that that was probably something that would give us an idea of relative decline. Okay, so we're, li we're living in an age of miserabilism. And, uh, yes, hi, um, Cameron Murray, I'm a student at LSE Ideas. Um, you mentioned the US um, fairly soon becoming energy self-sufficient. To what extent do you think that might lead them to retreat even further from the sort of international presence and thereby create a vacuum for others such as China to fill. Okay. Right, we'll take those two and see where we go. Um, yes, American politicians are optimistic. You, uh, it goes with the territory, so to speak. You have to be optimistic and that's why I find uh, Nixon so fascinating because he was uh, such an obvious exception uh, and he, he, he uh, I mean, the whole idea of Paul Kennedy and decline uh, was there uh, with Nixon. And, and there's an American uh, scholar, Robert Litwick, uh, who has uh, written probably the best about this when he wrote a book about the uh, Nixon mm. doctrine and this uh, sense of uh, decline uh, under, uh, uh, under Nixon. No, you have to be optimistic. Of course, you can... Um, you, you, you will charge your opponent or your predecessor with decline. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. They, uh, but as soon as you elect me, then of the United States will go on to new successes. I mean, this is the story you hear all the time. Uh, 
uh, Reagan and Carter. Yes, the United States had declined under Carter. Yes, it had. But if you elect me, there will be mourning in America. Uh, and when Paul Kennedy published his book in 87, I mean, Dukakis was the, the opponent, uh, 88, uh, uh, George Bush, uh, uh, and nobody discussed uh, Kennedy explicitly, but they all, uh, or both of them, and uh, many politicians, uh, talked about the decline, and they all rejected that the U.S. is declining. Mm -hmm. uh, all American politicians believe that the U.S., will almost permanently remain number one and that it is uh, special. And in, in the campaign, one of the challenges Obama faced was that he had been asked some time ago whether he believed that America was special. And I don't know if you remember his answer, but he said that, yes, Amer Americans believe America is special, like he said, like Brits believe that Britain is special and Greeks believe that Greek, uh, Greece is special, which is not a very American answer <laughs> uh, because America is unique. Uh, and I, I, I have met uh, many uh, Americans. I go to America uh, all the time. And uh, th there is one idea which is, I have found it is impossible to get almost any American to accept, except the experts who have done the studies. And that is the fact that the United States is no longer the country with the highest social mobility in the world. As a matter of fact, it is quite a, a bit down on the list. There are many countries in the world today with higher social mobility. But uh, almost every American, I mean, no, you're absolutely wrong. I mean, this is the American dream. And look at Obama. And of course, we can all come up with all kinds of examples in all kinds of countries, uh, going from rags to riches. But the US is not uh, unique. It does not have the highest social mobility, which I think you could put into this power equation too. And it is. Uh, uh, having uh, a somewhat negative effect uh, on the U.S. role. Although, and the other aspect, of course, is immigration. The U.S. has benefited tremendously from immigration. But when you look at some of the attitudes to immigration, and you look at some of the obstacles being uh, faced by students and others who want to go to the U.S., I mean, it's, uh, you're, you're shooting yourself. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, energy self-sufficient? Yes, it is very dramatic. Uh, uh, I had no idea this would be the case when I wrote my book. Uh, undoubtedly, we would have to deal with this. Uh, uh, but as I've already made perfectly clear, I uh, am not a one-factor man. I don't believe in uh, one-factor explanation. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to sell all these books, but it's, uh, it's also in a way lazy, I think. It's... Uh, yeah, because ultimately you have to put them together with all the other factors which you know are there which makes uh, the argument less coherent uh, but this is definitely um, an argument uh, a very important argument uh, on, the, on, on the plus side for the US 
And I have only, uh, only hinted at another plus argument for the U.S., and that is the demographic side. Um, the demographic future of the United States is pretty good um, because uh, they have uh, many children or more children in the U.S. than in Europe, and they also have immigration. So it's a relatively um, young population, not, of course, as young as in uh, India and some of these countries, uh, but the population balance is much better uh, than in China, and it is much better than in most European countries. Okay, at that stage, I think we're going to draw the, uh, the discussion to an end, partly because you said about wonderful to sell books, so I'm going to try and get some people to buy yours at the back and come back in. I was going to ask you a Norwegian question, which was going to ask you, at least the British might leave the European Union. When will Norway join it? <laughs> And I think the answer to that is never now. That debate, I think, has come to a very sharp end because of the crisis in, Norway, the crisis in Europe. It's, it's the most comfortable country in the world, is it not? I, I don't really like to go abroad to talk about Norway because uh, so few are interested. Uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, you provided the pretext. I will give you uh, my uh, ten cents of... Uh, <laughs> Insight. Um, I mean, if you want to find out a few things about Norway, you, you, you may wonder, why did Norway twice vote against joining the European Union? And I think it's... Uh, uh, pardon? Fish. No, 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 no. It's... Uh, Wales. Uh, no, 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 no. I mean, there were two arguments that uh, brought uh, the rest of Europe into the EU. Uh, it was either the security argument or it was the economic argument. Um, the security argument never made an impression. I mean, that was important for Finland and Eastern and Central Europe and all these countries. Uh, the security argument was never important in Norway because Norway had been a founding member of uh, NATO, a very loyal NATO ally, had a very close relationship uh, with the United States since we had a border with uh, the Soviet Union, uh, Russia, so the security argument, uh, there were about 10 people who were influenced by the security argument, and they, they were all security experts who lived in Oslo and persuaded absolutely no one. Um, um, and the other argument was the economic one. Um, um, but that didn't apply to Norway either, um, because Norway was among the richest countries in the world. And uh, it was very difficult to explain uh, what extra uh, Norway would gain since we were already so filthy rich. Um, and yes, uh, uh, it was very important. Uh, I mean, oil and gas, Norway was a producer and the rest of Europe were consumers. So uh, protection of fishing, yes. It's also very important that we have a very kind of uh, crucial division in Norwegian society and certainly also in the EU vote between the center and the periphery. I come from northern Norway. Mm. I knew from day one uh, that Norway would never ever join the EU. All my friends in the foreign office and all these people living in the capital, of course we Norway will join. No, it will not join. You have no idea what you're talking about. Because only the capital, only in the capital, 
did they vote to join the EU? All the rest of the country. I mean, they basically hated Oslo. And if they hated Oslo, what would it be to be run from Brussels? <laughs> and now the argument is absolutely dead. We are doing so well economically that at the, in the latest poll, there, and after the Nobel Peace Prize mm -hmm. and all this, there were 18 to 20% who said, yes, Norway should join. No, it will not happen in my lifetime. Probably not in yours either. <laughs> Perhaps we should get another lecture from you now on, on Norwegian, Norwegian relations with the EU, but I don't think we've got time. Anyway, I'd like to thank you all for coming along tonight to ask some great questions. Thanks to our speaker.